Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Why did Jesus die? Historically, we could say it was because the Roman Empire perceived him as a threat, or that the religious leaders in Jerusalem feared he would ignite an unwinnable revolution. Even so, the Bible offers a number of theological answers that go far beyond the immediate circumstances of his crucifixion. In this lecture, you'll learn about the eight main biblical reasons why Jesus died. Then we'll cover the sometimes controversial subjects of substitution and propitiation. Here now is Theology Part 17, Atonement Scriptures. Does anybody know what the word atonement means? So atonement means bringing together to one, two, or more parties that are at enmity. That means they're mad at each other. In relation to Christianity, Christian theology, it means bringing together God and humanity. Those are the two parties that are at, are at enmity. We are at enmity because God is holy and we have sinned. Three other quick words that I want to define before we really jump in here are, these are theological words that you may have encountered or already know, but I just want to make them clear. Justify is to make just, right, declare free from guilt. Reconcile means to reestablish a close relationship. Reconcile can also be used of money. It means to figure out what discrepancy is and fix it. Reconcile, in the, in the case of two people, is like Alyssa and Madison are fighting, and you see them like the next day, and they're friends again. And you say to them, oh, I see you guys have reconciled. I see you've reconciled. That's, that's good. I'm so happy you reconciled with each other. Which means you reestablish a close relationship. And then the last one that goes along with these words is sanctify, which means to make holy. Typically, we use the term justify or justification and reconcile or reconciliation to refer to salvation. And we use the term sanctify or sanctification to refer to lifestyle. So in the act of salvation, God justifies us, which means he sets us right. He clears away the guilt. And he reconciles us. He brings us back into relationship with him so that we can live a sanctified lifestyle. That is, a lifestyle that is no longer going to make a uh, breach between us and God. These are just theological words that I'm probably going to use, and, and I wanted you to be sure what they meant. Any questions on those? Do they make sense? You already know them? All right. So what I want to do is look through eight reasons that the Bible teaches why Jesus died. Doing a lecture on atonement is not at all an easy thing because there are so many theories that people have about how atonement actually worked. And what I'm interested in this class is what does the Bible say about the subject of atonement? So I've located or I, I've categorized eight different teachings in the Bible on the subject 
and they're a bit artificial. I'm going to warn you of that ahead of time. Typically in the Bible, which is sort of like the organic environment of theology, the Bible doesn't care about categories, so it'll like combine two together that I'm going to hold separately here. I'm just doing this to make it easy for you to see the differences between them. But I, I just want to begin with the caveat that in the Bible itself, it doesn't respect these distinctions. It's just like, it'll throw like three together and, and mix them up and, there, and there's no issue with that, okay? But to start with, I want to look at Jesus died to provide eternal life. This is in fact the least attested. There are the smallest, there are the fewest number of verses that teach this truth than any of the eight, which is really surprising to me. I would have thought that the Bible would talk about how Jesus died for us to have eternal life all over the place. But there are, in fact, only a few verses that talk about it. One of them is the most classic verse in the whole Bible, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God gave his Son so that we would have eternal life. I want you to have at least two verses for each of these eight categories, all right? And then the other verse that I really liked was Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. And that one says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These two verses teach us that Jesus died so that we could enter into the kingdom and reign. It does not say explicitly that he died so we could have eternal life. But if you have a good understanding of what the kingdom is, you realize that the door to the kingdom is resurrection and that the kingdom age is in fact eternal. So for example, in Revelation, 226 to 28 talks about the kingdom and that it will last forever. And there are many other similar verses, especially in Daniel chapter 7, that talk about how the kingdom will last forever and it will not be destroyed. And many other sayings of Jesus himself that talk about how the kingdom is essentially equivalent to life in the age to come. All right, you ready for the next one? Okay, here we go. Number two, Jesus died to reconcile us to God. So this is that vocab word I already showed you there. He died to reconcile us to God. The verse I have on that one is Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what God did through Christ was he reconciled us. He brought us back together. Another important text on this is Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All right, now, it kind of kills me that I have to do this subject this way with you. Because by nature, I mean, I am a scholar, but I'm really a pastor. And as a pastor, we preach. Preaching involves an emotional component that I'm not bringing in for this lecture, because if I, 
if, if, if I talk to you about how Jesus died for your sins and how that's so meaningful, I mean, obviously it's like the most meaningful part of Christianity, right? I'll never get through all this stuff. So please pardon my lack of emotion here and like building this up because that's what I would normally do in like a, a, a church environment or in talking with somebody like one-on-one -on -one because this is incredibly meaningful. I mean, we were sinners. We, were, we had no hope. We were without God. We were alienated. And he saved us. He brought us back. I mean, it's incredibly significant. But in order for me to get through the sort of like theology aspect of this, I need to just kind of like keep a steady pace so that we can get through all eight of these. Jesus died so that he could bring us near. We were once far off, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So Jesus brings us near, near. Look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile us both to God, Jews and Gentiles, to God, in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Absolutely beautiful. Jesus suffered, 1 Peter 3.18 says, to bring us to God. As a result, we can have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We have access to God. I think we're so used to thinking we have access to God that we're like, so what? Who doesn't have access to God? We don't have any right to have access to God. There's no like leg for us to stand on to say, God, you have to listen to my prayers. No, there's not. It's all by grace that he has given us access. And this is something that was very well explained in Ephesians 2, the second half especially. But we, we can't really go into it right now. All right, the next one, number three, is that Jesus died to express love. Of course, the text is classicus on this is John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Like I told you before, the verses don't respect my boundaries. So that John 3.16 verse at once tells us about Jesus died to provide eternal life, as well as that Jesus died to express love. But there are also other verses that show us this sublime fact, namely Romans 5, 8, which says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to make a point here that although our music almost always says Jesus loved us, and that's why he died for us, the standard biblical point is that God loved us, so Jesus died for us. Now it is true that Jesus loved us. Revelation 1.5 says, To him who loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, a priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it is obviously true that Jesus loved us, but generally, when, it's, when we're talking about the subject, Jesus died to express love, the love expressed in the majority of the verses that talk about it is the love of God expressed through Christ. Now, I'm sure if God could have died for your sins, he would have done it. But look, if God dies, the universe collapses. You know what I mean? He's the one that's holding it all together. So he sent his son to die for our sins. And that, I'm sure, was the most agonizing experience you could possibly go through. Watching an innocent child who volunteered, I mean, especially from God's perspective, a child, uh, who volunteered to represent the human race and go through all that suffering. I mean, what kind of agony did God go through on the cross 
while Jesus was going through agony on the cross. And yet he did it to express his love for us. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus is not a naive pawn in a master plan. He's a willing volunteer. Jesus says, I will do it. So it's not like Jesus is just like used by God. He willingly agrees to go along with that plan. All right, the next point, Jesus died to defeat evil. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So through death, Jesus defeated death, which was the most powerful weapon of the devil. Let me read it again. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Right? So the most powerful weapon the devil has is death, and that's what Jesus experienced, and in experiencing it, defeated that evil. This is the idea that we are no longer prisoners in the domain of darkness. So, for example, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, says that by nature we are children of wrath. It says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, and that we walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Like our default, the human default, is to go with the flow of the devil's rebellious strategies of life. It's just to go with that flow, to dance to the drumbeat of the devil. However, because of what God has done in Christ, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so this truth is that not only does the cross show us, not only does the cross get us the possibility of eternal life, not only does the cross reconcile us to God, not only does it express God's love, but the cross defeats evil itself. The analogy I always like is to think of a sponge. That on the cross, Jesus is like a sponge. And he absorbs into himself all of the evil that the devil and the religious leaders and the guy next to him, whoever else, could throw at him. He just absorbs it all and he does not crack. And, in, in, and, and then he dies. And what I mean by crack is he doesn't reciprocate. He doesn't give evil back. He doesn't fall into sin himself. He doesn't, it says that he, he uttered no threats, is what the Bible says. While being reviled, he uttered no threats. He just, he just absorbed it all into himself, and then he died. And by doing that, he defeated evil. That's not actually in the Bible. That's my own analogy. Feel free to use it. Jesus died to defeat evil. I already said that. Jesus died to provide an example. When I look at all the verses, I categorize it by the least to the most. All right. So as we as we're going down here, we're seeing more and more verses on this subject. Jesus died to provide an example. The great verse on this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, which says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What Peter is saying here is that the way Christ handled himself on the cross is an example to you for how you should handle yourself when you go through suffering. So Jesus on the cross provides us with an example. The other classic example of that is Philippians 2, verse 4, which talks about how we're not supposed to look after our own interests, and we have to ha we're supposed to have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. And it talks about how He, in the form of a human, humbled Himself, in verse 8, becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. So Jesus is our example. What did Jesus do? He set aside his own self-interest and instead what he did was he, he acted on our behalf. He acted on God's behalf. He did what was the right thing to do even though it wasn't the, you know, enjoyable for him, right? And so in other words, that's an example for us. That's Philippians 2, 4 through 10. Next one up, number six. Jesus died to justify us apart from the law. A great portion of Paul's epistles, Romans and Galatians, for example, discuss the Jews' relation to the law and sin now that Christ has opened up a new way of relating to God through His work on the cross. Though we could not have justification through the works of the law, we can find it apart from the law through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's Romans 3.19. Let's take a look at this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. And it goes on there, and it says in verse 24, well, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So, because of what Jesus has done, He has opened up a way for us to find justification and reconciliation apart from the law of Moses. Now, the way it was set up, under the law was that there were all these commandments that you needed to obey as a result of being in that covenant with God. And there, there was a provision for paying for sin. It was called the Day of Atonement. But there would also be a lot of other days in the year, right? And uh, it's pretty clear that this Day of Atonement was, was sort of like a way to deal with sin without actually defeating sin. And that's what, in fact, Jesus is able, was able to do. Apart from the law, Jesus was able to reconcile us to God and not just sort of like band-aid over the problem, but actually heal it so that we could be healed from the sinful actions and impulses that we all, by nature, have ourselves. In addition, Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, makes a big deal out of Christ's death in relation to the law of Moses. We learn that God's Son is better than the angels, better than Moses. His priesthood is better than the priesthood of Aaron. 
that the new covenant Jesus ratified with his blood is better than the old covenant because it's based on better promises. What, what, what's the point of Hebrews? Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better, the new covenant is better than the law and so on. So, as a result of Christ's death, we have a new way to relate to God apart from what was available before. Galatians 3, 10 through 13 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Uh-oh. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So, once again, Jesus died to justify us apart from the law, which was the main way that God had provided for His people to relate to Him before this, was the Torah, the Old Covenant, the temple, the sacrificial system. That was how people were able to relate to God before. After that, now we can relate to God through Jesus, even if we're not Jewish, which I think in this room is a pretty sweet advantage, considering I don't think any of us are Jewish. All right, reason number seven, Jesus died to free us from sin so that we would live righteously. Jesus died to free us from sin to live righteously. Though this purpose of Christ's death gets short shrift, in other words, people don't typically talk about this, the sheer volume of text describing it should alert us to how important it is for a balanced understanding of atonement. The bumper sticker, I don't know if you've ever seen this one, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, glibly excuses the driver from any number of transgressions and misunderstandings that Christ garnered forgiveness for our past sins without setting us free in the present. I mean, how many times have you seen or heard people with an attitude that says, well, my sins are covered so I can do whatever I want. I showed you an example of that our first lecture together. That guy was a mass murderer. <laughs> Not really a healthy doctrine to have in your brain, right? It's much better to understand the biblical teaching that Jesus died not just to deal with our sin in the sense of like paying for it, but to free us from sin so that we can live righteously. It says in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Why did he bear our sins? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is a really important aspect that we often don't see very much about. But I want to show you another verse that talks about this. This is Romans 6, 6, which says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look, Jesus defeated sin. Jesus dealt with sin. Jesus, as we'll see in a minute, died for our sins so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 11, So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, having become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. 
Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus, Christ's death not only covers sin, but kills it, or rather, kills us so that we can find freedom. And that's the beginning of the chapter too. We were buried with him in baptism so that you know, through that death process, obviously it's a spiritual death, we would then be raised to walk in the newness of life. What I find interesting about Romans 6 though, I don't know if you ever studied Romans 6, but what I find so interesting about Romans 6 is that you never get free. You're always still a slave. It's like, okay, you were a slave to sin, and then you got free from that, so now you're a slave to righteousness. But nobody's like totally free to do whatever you want. If you're free to do whatever you want, you know what you really are? You're a slave to sin. <laughs> you just think you're free, but you're really a slave to sin. Just like the fish that wants to jump out of the water and experience freedom. Yeah, sure, you're free, but then you die. <laughs> All right, number eight. Are you ready for number eight? Jesus died for our sins. This is the biggest collection of texts in the New Testament. Actually, also some from the Old Testament as well. But primarily in the New Testament. Somehow, Jesus' death dealt with our sins. Or sin with a capital S in general. We find perhaps the most primitive expression of this in 1 Corinthians 15.3. Very simply, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That is the earliest statement we have, chronologically speaking, about the death of Christ. And it's simply that he died for our sins. There's no real theological explanation here other than it was in the scriptures and then Jesus died for our sins. So when I start to think about the question, what scriptures, what, where did this idea come from? Because they're talking about the Old Testament. They're not, the New Testament wasn't written yet at this time. He's writing it. Okay, I start thinking, okay, well, Isaiah has a prophecy about someone who would suffer and die. Isaiah 52 and 53. Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement and dealing with sin. Psalm 22 talks about someone who is going to be basically ganged up upon and suffer as a result of a bunch of other people around him, a bunch of bullies, which very, very closely parallels the crucifixion experience. Or Exodus 12 talks about the Passover. So you have these different hints of what Jesus dying for our sins would mean. I mean, it never says Jesus as in like Jesus of Nazareth. It never says uh, that the Messiah will die. But there are hints that there is a sacrificial system in place. There's something that has to die in order to pay for sin. There, that's like obvious to them. And then there are all these prophecies I just mentioned, like Isaiah 52, 53. However, it was really at the Last Supper that Jesus first brought clarity to this subject. And this is what Jesus says. He says, he took, a, well, he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus, before he died, already gave some very rudimentary understanding of what atonement would be like in the sense that his blood would establish a new covenant and it would be for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take a look at Isaiah 53. 
this really starts in 52 verse 13, but we're going to start reading in 53 verse 1. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. This is talking about the suffering servant. And it's saying, this person just looked like everybody else. He wasn't a foot taller. He didn't have, you know, Luke's dashing good looks. You know, his uh, piercing blue eyes and his blonde hair. And do you have blue eyes? You do. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, Jesus looked just like everybody else. You know, he wasn't taller. He wasn't shorter. He wasn't fatter. He wasn't skinny. He just looked like another Israelite. In fact, if you think about it, in the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas had to identify Jesus with a kiss. You know, the kiss wasn't about... It, it was, the kiss was to identify which guy do I arrest? Which guy should they arrest? So he looked like everybody else. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men would hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was despised, he was rejected, he was a man of sorrows, he was acquainted with grief, he had a tough life. Jesus did not have the life of Siddhartha Gautama, who later became known as the Buddha, who lived in a palace as a, as a young person and had all of the money and all of the prestige. No, Jesus was into a podunk, tiny hamlet in the middle of a backwater province of the Roman Empire called Galilee. And Nazareth was the kind of town that had the reputation, like Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's where Jesus grew up. I mean, obviously he was born in Bethlehem, but that's where he grew up. And that's where he, like, people would recognize him from. His father was not a king or a philosopher or a warrior. His father was a carpenter. His mother had other children. She, she cared for the children in the house. This is the, this is the background that he came from. He did not go to a university. Universities didn't really exist back then, but he didn't have a tutor. He wasn't versed in classical Greek philosophy. He was just a normal person that grew up in a God-fearing home where he learned the Bible and God worked with him over the years until he began his ministry, right? Verse 3 again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted." See, this is where we start to get the notion of substitution. And the reason why is because he's not carrying his own griefs, he's carrying our griefs. And it's clear that we're rejecting him. It says at the end of verse 3 that we hid our faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. So we're not thinking he's so great. But he is also at the same time bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. When people looked at Jesus on that cross, they didn't say, I'm so thankful he's carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders. They're thinking, why is God punishing that guy? That's what it said at the end of verse 4. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, 
Verse 5, this is one of the key verses on the subject of atonement in the entire Bible, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you see the weight of that verse, the, uh, the gravity of it? I mean, what it says is that he is pierced. But he's not pierced for his transgressions, he's pierced for our transgressions. The punishment, the chastisement, the punishment upon him brought us peace. So this is, once again, this idea of substitution or him suffering the penalty on our behalf. And by his wounds, we are healed. You've probably heard that a thousand times, but think about it. That is a really strange statement. You know, if, if I beat up Cosmos in the back, how does that make Naomi healed? I mean, it's just a weird idea. But there is, there is something about what Jesus did here that because he suffered, we receive healing. And I think this is primarily talking about spiritual healing as re in reference to transgressions and stuff, but it, it can also refer to, to physical healing as well, at least in some instances. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the idea of him suffering the penalty that was due to us. He was oppressed, verse 7, He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and, the, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then we get to verse 10, which gives us God's perspective. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. That key part there, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Once again, going back to the love, expressing love. The cross, obviously, is the love of Jesus, but it's even more so, it's the love of God. It's God's will, it's God's plan. God set this whole event up so that it would be the way that he could deal with sin through this perfect sacrifice. So it's ultimately God's plan behind it all. Verse 11, Out of anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I mean, Isaiah 53 is, is one of the greatest pieces of all human literature. It's, it's really one of the greatest pieces of literature on the planet. I mean, you, you, if you really meditate on this chapter, you take it slowly, line by line. It's a poem, and it's written to express a reality that would not actually occur for centuries, something like seven centuries. I'm not sure exactly what year Isaiah is writing this, but it's centuries and centuries later. 
And then when it finally happens, people see Jesus on the cross and they fulfill the script that this, that this prophecy says. They esteem him stricken, smitten of God. They despise him. They reject him. Even his own followers. They didn't despise him, but they rejected him. Everyone else was despising him, rejecting him, but even his own followers rejected him. What did Peter say? I don't know the man. That's what he said. He rejected him. He wouldn't stand by him. So, I mean, it's really a powerful, powerful place, but there are a couple of important theological points that we need to get to in the midst of all of this. Before I move on, I want to just read out to you you don't have to write these down, but I just want to read out to you a number of quick verses that relate to this subject. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. John 11.50 says, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then the next verse, John 11.51 says, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Romans 4.25 says, Jesus was handed over for our trespasses. Romans 5.6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. 5.8 says, Christ died for us. Romans 14.15 says, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 2 Corinthians 5.14, One has died for all, therefore all have died. Over and over and over again, and I've got another whole ten verses here, the New Testament says Christ died for us. He died so that we wouldn't have to die ourselves. And so this is where we get to the idea of substitution. That Jesus died instead of us. Now there are different ways to think about this. And this is kind of like one of the reasons why I'm really struggling with this lecture. Because there are at least seven or eight theories of atonement. And I'm familiar with all of them, and I want to just like vomit them on you and like go for like two hours straight and not do my next lecture. But that would be irresponsible, and you should never vomit on anyone, even if you're a baby. But it happens. Let me move to talk about two factors that I've been kind of dancing around, and they're very controversial today in scholarship, but in all honesty, I think the Bible teaches them. And I think there are good ways to understand them, so there's no good reason to reject them. And they are, first of all, the whole idea of the penalty, that Jesus suffered our penalty, and then the idea of substitution. If you put those two together, you have penal substitution, which is a doctrine developed primarily in the 1500s by John Calvin, and it is somewhat of an upgrade, or downgrade, depending on what you think, of Anselm of Canterbury's doctrine of satisfaction, which came out 500 years before. I'm not trying to affirm penal substitution here. I just want to look at each of these independently and explain a way of thinking about this that maybe doesn't agree with what John Calvin said 100%, but agrees with what the Bible says 100%, okay? So um, a lot of this com stuff comes down to uh, the word elaskome, and that's the Greek verb that means to propitiate. So much of the debate about the atonement comes down to this one simple word. A lot of translations like the NASB, the HCSB, the ESV, and the New King James all 
translate that word to make propitiation. However, other translations like the NIV and the NET translate it to make atonement. And then others like the NAB, RSV, NJB, and NRSV translate it to expiate. These are our three translation options for Elascome. It can mean to propitiate, to atone, or to expiate. Atone is totally non-controversial. Everyone's just gonna say, yes, it means that. But that's not all it means. It could mean propitiate or expiate. And there's a big difference between these two words. And there's been a lot of debate within Christianity, like uh, both liberal and conservative Christianity, but also conservative versus conservative on how we should understand these things. So, once again, to atone is to bring together, to make one, two parties that are at enmity. To ex expiate means to express regret by making amends. So, to expiate is essentially to say sorry, to make amends, to somehow make somebody happy. To propitiate means to appease wrath. So propitiate is to appease the wrath of an offended party, whereas expiation focuses on the penitence of the offender. Propitiation concentrates on the conciliation of the offended party. Okay, let's, let's come up with a hypothetical. Let's say that uh, Jenna and Caitlin are having a situation. Let's say that uh, Caitlin steals something from Jenna. Something of uh, great value. What do you have of great value? A necklace. This was my dad's wedding band. Okay, so that, all right. So if you, if Caitlin wants to expiate, what she does is she goes and she says, oh, I'm so sorry. I want to make amends. Here's the wedding band back. Please forgive me. I'm so sorry. That's her expiating. It's very much focused on Caitlin's side of it. Propitiate is recognizing that you are super angry and she's trying to appease you. So it's like, instead of her saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I feel bad and I wanna express regret and make amends, it's more of her saying to you, what's it gonna take to make you not angry anymore? And you're like, all right, well, for starters, give me back my necklace. And second of all, why don't you do this, this, and this, and then maybe I'll stop being mad at you. Right? So propitiate is much more focused on appeasing the wrath, whereas expiate is more on expressing regret and making amends. They're obviously, these are nuances on a word, right? They're, they're fairly similar. But let's look at the four main verses where this shows up. Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, and 1 John 4.10. All right, so let's take a look at those ever so briefly. Uh, Romans 3.25 says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Let me back up to verse 24. We have already read this verse, but I didn't sensitize you yet to the, the P word, so you probably didn't notice it. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So 
It's interesting here because what it says is that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. It doesn't say that Jesus put himself forward as a propitiation to God, but that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. And then it doesn't say for what, it just says by his blood to be received by faith. So my point is that it's ambiguous whether or not it's talking about God's wrath here. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now once again, it just says make propitiation for the sins of the people. It doesn't say propitiate God's wrath. It just says propitiate, make propitiation for the sins of the people. 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins. Once again, the propitiation is for our sins. It's not propitiation for God, necessarily, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then last of all, 1 John 4, 10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Once again, the propitiation is for our sins. And here, Propitiation is an evidence of God's love, not wrath, but love for us. Now listen, I'm not saying God doesn't have wrath. I'm not a softy, okay? I believe in the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the holiness of God. On the other hand, I believe in the mercy of God. I believe in the love of God. I believe in His forgiveness. I believe in both at the same time. I'm not smart enough to hold that all together in my head, but I can at least affirm both sides of who God is that we see in Scripture. And what I'm saying here is that, yes, God does have wrath at our sin and at us for committing that sin. And I believe that He one day will pour out His wrath. It says so in the prophecies about what happens in the end. Okay? But do I believe that on the cross, God was angry at His innocent, voluntarily suffering Son and poured out all his wrath on Jesus in that moment on the cross. I don't have a verse that says that. And so that's where I part ways with John Calvin and the Reformed people, John Piper, and so many people that are saying that today, where they say, on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. There's not a verse, I just showed you the verses, it doesn't say that. What it says is, on the cross, Jesus was making propitiation for our sins. So whatever that means, whether it's appeasing wrath or saying sorry and making amends, that wrath that God has is not directed, so far as I can tell, anywhere in Scripture, at His Son. Why? Because His Son never <laughs> did anything wrong. And especially not in His supreme act of self-sacrifice, He's not experiencing God's wrath. So, some people get really mad at me if I said that. I just had to say it. I got it out. I feel better now. Thank you. Let me offer some concluding thoughts here. Based on what it says in Isaiah 53 and a number of those other verses I listed out to you, I believe Jesus does stand in for us as a substitute. But there's a better way to think of it than just combining together penal and substitution into penal substitution view. All right? And that is, it was called by Joshua Thoreau, or Thoreau, it was called communal substitution theory. And this is the idea that Jesus is our substitute, but he's not just a normal substitute, like one for one. He's a representative. He's a representative of the human race. 
What he says is that we should look at humanity as a group that has sinned. We tend to think individualistically because we're Americans, or at least some of us are Americans, uh, and we think we think indiv as individuals always. We always default to that. But the Bible typically looks at groups, and especially humankind as opposed to a specific human. So think about it as humanity as a group has sinned. As a human, Jesus is a member of the group. And he's our CEO. He's our top representative. Jesus can take responsibility for the group either by making satisfaction or suffering the penalty. Individuals can then participate or appropriate what Jesus has accomplished and say, yeah, I'm with him. And that happens through faith and repentance. Pulling it all together, what we have is those eight clear statements, right, that we find in Scripture. Jesus died to provide eternal life. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Jesus died to express love. Jesus died to defeat evil. Jesus died to provide an example. Jesus died to justify us apart from the law. Jesus died to free us from sin, to live righteously. And then most importantly, and significantly, Jesus died for our sins. Now, when it comes to this last foundation stone, and we ask the question, well, how did that work? Now we get into the question of, what does propitiate mean? How, how exactly does him dying for our sins deal with our sins? And that's when we get into all these different theories about how that might possibly work. And what I'm saying to you is, whichever way you translate it here, it's clear that he did suffer the penalty. He did make satisfaction to what we owed God. He paid that debt. And he also did so in our place. And however you want to wrestle with that and figure that out, whatever doctrine or theory you develop from that, it cannot ever disagree with these eight, these eight categories because these are Bible. You know what I'm saying? And there are many different atonement theories that are out there that we're not going to go into, but if they contradict even one of these, I would get rid of it. I would exclude it. All right, any, any questions? I realize I kind of got a little technical at the end there, but are you all right? Have you survived? All right, that's enough for this lecture. Well, that's it for this study of atonement. Next time, we'll delve deeply into the various overarching theories that Christians have had over the centuries to understand what the options are for answering the important question, why did Jesus die? So stay tuned for that next week. We've got a new review. This is from Taylorsville, who writes, I really enjoy these podcasts. Sean is such a great teacher, but welcomes discussion and other viewpoints. However, he always goes back to the scriptures to reveal the truth. Well, hey, thanks for submitting that to Apple Podcasts. These are so important, these reviews, for helping people find this podcast. And if you, dear listener, have been thinking about writing a podcast review but haven't gotten around to it yet, why not today? I sure would appreciate it. Also, we've got a couple of comments that I need to read out. First is from Sean Holbrook, who wrote in on Theology 15, Challenging the Holy Spirit. He says, There was a better answer of cross-references that clearly showed Acts 5, 3-4 verse was regarding God as the Father, and this meaning of Spirit had to do with the authority of the apostles whom God had bestowed the Spirit. Basically, if God was in them and their teachings, then to disobey them was also to disobey God. 
I want to believe it was in one of Anthony Buzzer's books, but I can't quite recall for sure the reference in the New Testament is self-explanatory, and the Old Testament shows the same principle with Moses. 1 Thessalonians 4.8, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Psalm 106, 32-33, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Basically, it's the same representational principle explained many times throughout the Bible. To disobey a message from a man given by his spirit is to disobey God. Uh, Sean, thanks for... Thanks for pointing that out. This is the text in Acts 5.3 where it said, where Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then verse 4 where it says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So uh, Sean Holbrook's point here is that because the uh, Apostle Peter had the Holy Spirit filling him, okay, so lying to Peter, the Apostle, who's filled with God's Spirit, is the same as lying to God because Peter is influenced by God and standing in for God in this situation. What's an interesting thought, Sean? Thanks for bringing it up. I wonder if you listeners would agree with that or not. On to our next comment by Richie Temple on an article I put out a couple of weeks ago called The Good Samaritan. He writes, There is a great deal in this article that is certainly good counsel for the church and with which I agree. However, it is certainly not true that the biblical principle in either the Old or New Testaments was meant to be construed ethnically. In the very same chapter of Leviticus 19 that you quote about loving your neighbor as yourself for fellow Israelites is an extension of the same principle of love your neighbor as yourself to the foreigner, alien, stranger, or sojourner, depending on the translation, who is living amongst the Israelites. There is nothing ethnic about this at all. Rather, the principles of love God and love one's neighbor are universal principles for all mankind based upon the truth that there are people who are created in God's image. Since Israel was God's chosen people and a theocracy under God, this was obviously an obligation that they were to carry out as his holy people. However, Israel was also supposed to be a witness to the world of the goodness, justice, righteousness, and holiness of God's person and the laws, too, that the other nations would turn to him as well. However, the principles of loving God and loving neighbor are always qualified by other biblical principles, which is why the very same Israelites who were commanded to love their neighbors as themselves were also commanded in the very next chapter to judicially execute their fellow Israelites whenever they committed capital crimes. The Israelites' relations with their woefully sinful neighbor nations must be understood in a similar sense. God's will throughout the Old Testament and New Testament is love for neighbor and even for the enemy. However, those principles are always qualified by and guarded by the principle of righteousness and justice as well. Just as God himself, who is love, executes both righteousness, justice, and vengeance, both in this present age and in the final judgment. Thank you, Richie, for writing in and pushing back on this. I do construe God's command in Leviticus 19.18 as an ethnic command. And I say that because God has chosen a people based on their ethnicity, 
based on their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, that's what I mean by ethnicity. And they were God's chosen people. And, the, and you know, maybe this is something that we need to go back and forth on a few times here to get clarity on. But my reading of Leviticus, and I don't believe in any sense it's a, it's a sectarian reading. Uh, my reading of Leviticus is that God is creating, he's socially engineering a nation to be separate from the nations that surround them and from other nations on the earth. And I don't believe that that is evangelistic in nature. I think it's survivalistic, if I could use that word, in nature. God knows that if his people syncretize, even just in minor ways with the surrounding nations, then they will fall into idolatry. And in fact, that's what ended up happening, and it nearly led to the entire destruction of the nation if it weren't for God's brilliant strategy of using that 70-year exile to cure them of idolatry, they would have been gone, like the northern tribes of Israel, which just simply disappeared to history. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't interpret the Torah as some sort of like universal law for all of mankind. No, not at all. I, I interpret it as something that God gave to his people to, in, in almost a sense, to make them weird so that they wouldn't be able to have table fellowship, so they wouldn't be able to have intermarriage or interaction in many ways with the surrounding Gentiles. And I believe all of this changed under Christ, uh, who brings in a whole new way of relating to God, not through Torah, not through temple, not through sacrifice and holy days, but through his own shed blood on the cross. So uh, I know that a number of listeners of Rest Studio might disagree with that, uh, but that's that's where I stand, at least right now. And uh, I, I think, Richie, you and I can at least agree that whatever your take or my take on Leviticus is, Jesus' point here in his parable of the Good Samaritan is that we are to reach across lines. We are to show love to the terrorist, to the... Uh, you know, the person who is our national enemy. And that's really the, the sort of startling contrast that Jesus sets up here between the Judean and the Samaritan. I mean, these these were people that terrorized each other. Uh, the Samaritans at one point littered the temple area with dead bodies just to invalidate Passover one year. Um, and certainly the Judeans during the uh, pre-Christ time did incredible incredibly horrible things to the Samaritans and, and, and forcibly converted them and destroyed their temple. So, I mean, there is just deep blood hatred between these, these people groups. And that's the contrast Jesus uses to teach this principle of loving the one you're near as loving your neighbor as yourself. It is new wine and new wineskins as I interpret it and understand it. So I, I would have to respectfully disagree with you on that, but thanks for... Uh, voicing voicing your view, and I'm certainly open to consider other perspectives on this subject. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next week where we delve deeper into the subject of atonement. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.